0: Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. The cruel, bizarre, and frankly evil Supreme Court decision taking away a woman's right to choose is wreaking havoc in the medical community. To help us make sense of the legal lay of the land and the ethical status of abortion, we've invited Katie L. Watson onto the show. Katie is an associate professor of medical education, medical social sciences and obstetrics and gynecology, and the Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine. Katie is a lawyer who clerked in the federal court and a bioethicist. She is the author of The Scarlet A The Ethics, Law, and Politics of Ordinary Abortion. At the Supreme Court today, an historic upheaval.
1: In a sweeping ruling that overturned a half a century of precedence, five justices ended the right of American women to choose abortion under the Constitution. Originalists like my colleague Justice Scalia believe that all questions should be interpreted through the historical lens of what the founding fathers were confronting.
2: Is the Constitution a living document? open to interpretation or is it something that must be read strictly and adhered to regardless of the day?
1: I think all their statements should be looked at very, very carefully. And I think they misled the Senate with the intention of getting their confirmation vote with the intention of overruling Roe. Hi, I'm Katie Watson and I'm passionate about women's personhood. Sorry, not sorry.
0: Katie, thanks so much for being a part of the podcast, and I want to jump into the issues around the Dobbs decision, but first, can you tell me and your listeners a little bit about yourself?
1: Sure. I'm an attorney, I'm a bioethicist, and a professor at a medical school, which means I study birth, death, and sex. I'm never bored, and I work with young doctors and people aspiring to be doctors and thinking about patients' rights. But my area of scholarship in the area I work the most is in
0: abortion care, the ethics and the law of abortion. Okay. So what exactly does a bioethicist do? I've never even heard that word. That's so terrific. So a bioethicist is someone who thinks
1: about ethics and what's right and wrong and what you should or shouldn't do. And in my sphere, I work in a medical school. So I think about medical ethics. And I think about the relationship between physicians and patients and how powerful and intimate and high stakes that can be. And I help train physicians to do that in the most ethical way possible to support patients' rights and patient flourishing.
0: Can you tell us a little bit about how the law and bioethics kind of intersect?
1: Well, so typically things like Physician-assisted dying or abortion, which we're going to talk about today. There are things where you might have a legal right to a medical procedure, but then the ethical dimensions of how the practice of medicine is going to address it or support your decision-making or support the incredible diversity of decision-making across patients becomes the ethical aspect of it.
0: Okay, let's just dive right into the latest gut-wrenching Supreme Court decision about abortion. In layperson's terms, what does it mean? Well, the court
1: has made an incredible mistake that puts it on the wrong side of history. In the simplest terms, interpreted as they said, women aren't people protected by the Constitution. So they took a right that was almost a half century old and just made it disappear because they disagreed with it, which is not what Supreme Court justices are meant to do when analyzing constitutional law. So they reversed Roe versus Wade and said it's up to states to decide whether women are to be free or whether they can be forced into pregnancy and motherhood that they didn't want.
0: I mean, right now we have... Incredibly different, maybe even polar opposite laws about abortion in different states. And how does that impact medical providers?
1: Dramatically. When you say polar opposite, I just want to make a point that states like mine, Illinois, the law is that individuals get to decide. There's no law forcing you to not have a child. And so often we position pro-choice as opposed to fetal rights, but really pro-choice is in the middle. Forced abortion would be on the other side. We've got forced motherhood and then forced abortion. And the pro-choice freedom position is really in the middle that says, wow, that's incredibly intimate and personal. We're gonna leave it to individual. But it is true. We have states where you have freedom to continue a pregnancy, no matter what the circumstances or how challenging they are, medically, socially, or to end it. And then we have states that are outright banning abortion and saying women cannot use this safe, effective medical technology. They can't have access to it. And they must be relegated to their historical and biological roles with pregnancy and motherhood always being primary and central, regardless of their moral vision or their aspirations for their own lives.
0: You wrote an article which you called abortion a force for good. Can you just explain this?
1: I think so often we're apologetic and we think of abortion almost as a necessary evil or something that's not to be embraced, but it's something that we have to have. And in that article, I talk about the argument for abortion as a moral good. So if you think that an embryo or a fetus has a lower moral status, than an adult woman. And you think the freedom of adult women and all people capable of pregnancy is a moral good? Economists are now predicting that uh, child poverty, that the rate of that is going to go up. Mm -hmm. Many of these states that are now banning abortion do not have paid family leave. They do not have Mm -hmm. the extended Medicaid for after giving, you know, women who Mm -hmm. give birth. Um, So if you could explain a little bit more about how you're going to fight for these Disadvantaged women Mm. who wanted to get an abortion, they couldn't because of the state they Mm. live in, and their children who are growing up um, in poverty. Then the ability to resist and refuse an unwanted pregnancy is a moral good. It's a good thing in the world to have that for that individual and for that society. And I have respect, again, as an ethicist, that we live in a pluralistic society. So I'm not trying to force that view on anyone else for their pregnancy, but that's a good in the world in a pluralistic society.
0: Talking about pluralistic societies, religion and science often have super conflicting ideas of what is ethical. How should the law approach ethics given the conflicts?
1: Of course, I think that it should err on the side of science. We don't live in a theocracy as supposedly, and we have a First Amendment prohibiting the establishment of a church and separating church and state. However, I got bad news for you, Alyssa. Science isn't going to solve this one for us. It's going to be ethics and morality, and it's not going to solve it for us because we're each going to be so sure we're right and come to different conclusions. And so that's where we circle back to pluralism. If you want to subscribe to a religious point of view, rock on. If you want to say it's all science and the science tells me X, go nuts. But Katha Pollitt actually called it how DNA has become a secular substitute for the soul. And so how those who argue that single cell conception is the same as you and me, because it has that DNA blueprint. And like scientifically, they're not wrong. It has a DNA blueprint. It's the moral conclusion. It's the same moral status as you and me that we can debate all day and all night and for the rest of our lives. So the science doesn't nail it. So it's when pro-choice people say, oh, an embryo at this stage is only the size of a dot on a paper. So what? You still have to argue why that matters. And when those who oppose legal abortion say, but it has the same DNA as you and me, you still have to say, okay, so what? What does that matter? It's called scientism, just leaning on science and then being like, we're done. We're never done.
0: It's interesting. I recently tweeted about a case in Texas in which a woman was just left bleeding for days during an extended miscarriage. She had to be intubated, and doctors could not act until the fetal cardiac electrical activity stopped. And many people in the comments blame the doctors for not adhering to the do not harm portion of their oath. So what is the role of doctors when their oaths come into conflict with the law, both legally and ethically?
1: I have great sympathy for the doctors who are caught between the absolute desire and need to do everything for their patient and not wanting to commit a felony and never be able to treat another patient again. And so that's a crisis of conscience that no one should be in no professional who's committed to helping other people should ever be put in that. The villain here is the Texas law, not the doctors. That said, this is a time for doctors to stand up, have a strong spine and say, I answer to the medical ethics first and the law second, and I am here to save my patient's life and I'll handle the consequences as they come. Now, for them to be able to do that, they have to be confident that the royal rest of us have their backs, stand up with them and for them politically, financially, and otherwise when they walk that plank.
0: How do we get that message to them that we would be supportive and that we do have their backs?
1: Starting with conversations like this, but I think it's hard. We need to have legal defense funds started for physicians who will be prosecuted under these laws. And that's a hard thing to do because the 501c3s cannot set up grant money to defend people who have committed crimes legally. So that needs folks like you and me who donate our 20 to $20 million into a fund that protects these folks. It's also the big law firms making pro bono commitments to say, we'll represent you for free because we stand with you. That's a corporate kind of commitment that can happen. It's academic medical centers and hospitals saying, we will defend you. You work for us and you serve our patients and we have your back. So there's a lot of institutional moves that could send that message that says, you practice medicine, we'll take care of the rest.
0: One part that is not really discussed is if states define embryos or zygotes as life, what happens with embryos created for IVF? How you know, are infertility doctors and patients impacted by these laws?
1: Yeah, we'll see how that plays out. The law as it's written in a statute, and then there's the enforcement environment. So I always ask my students, raise your hand if you've ever seen a speed limit sign and intentionally driven higher than that. And they all raise their hands, of course, because you won't get pulled over if you go over a little bit. And so I think that it will have a chilling effect.
0: The potential Supreme Court decision to overturn Roe versus Wade could have repercussions for fertility treatments such as in vitro fertilization. Studies show about two in every 100 children born in the U.S. today are conceived through IVF, and 33% of Americans have turned to fertility treatments or know someone who has.
1: What lawyers call a chilling effect, it makes IVF practitioners more conservative because they don't want to be in a legal bind. However, I think the most immediate effect in IVF, it will require people to keep the embryos they don't use frozen for eternity so they don't destroy them, which raises the cost of IVF. But I want to point out something ironic, if that's the word. In 1992, we had the Casey case, which affirmed the holding of Roe, but was this really difficult compromise that introduced the undue burden standard, allowed this flood of regulations. The same year there was a statute in Congress, the first federal regulation of IVF and all the assisted reproduction. All it said was they had to report their success rate. So consumers and patients could see, does this really work? Does this clinic do a good job? And it very specifically said that they couldn't do anything to regulate the practice of medicine within it. And so the same year that they're making OBGYNs who perform abortions, go through all these non-medically necessary hoops. They're telling OBGYNs who create life, we won't touch you. And so the pronatalist cultural message, which says women are supposed to be mothers, so you can do your fancy science if you're trying to make them mothers, but you can't do this incredibly simple, safe medicine if they don't want to be mothers. That message is loud and clear. So I do think IVF could be threatened, But I also think we have to have this interpretive lens of the cultural enforcement landscape. At the moment, that's not who they're coming for. That can change.
0: Since Dobbs, there have been reports of upticks in the number of men and women seeking medical sterilization procedures, but doctors often pressure women to avoid or delay these procedures. So how do medical ethics come into play with that?
1: Medical ethicists always want to support informed decision-making, and that means whether it's informed consent or informed refusal, you understand the risks, benefits, and alternatives of whatever medical procedure you're considering, and you take those medical facts and you combine them with your values, your religion, your social circumstances, and make a decision that's best for you, although sometimes in medicine you're choosing between bad alternatives, So make a decision you can sleep with and sleep at night if you made that decision, a decision you can live with, I should say. So what is harrowing is feeling like your abortion right is no longer present means people don't have full decision making in all of their reproductive lives. So some people will have a vasectomy or a tubal ligation that they're closing a door that for whatever reason they wanted open before. But when they've lost their right to abortion, they think, I can't afford to have this door open. So that troubles me that those rates are going up because they're responding to a restrictive environment that's limiting people's choices in childbearing. And again, when you support choice, it really has to mean not just the choice to not have a child, but the choice to have a child. So I'm just as troubled as people foreclosing their reproductive opportunities for the future As for them being forced to reproduce today.
0: This kind of goes with something that you mentioned before, and I want to just step back and just refocus the conversation and talk about how we discuss abortion. In your book, The Scarlet A., you note that we often talk about extreme cases, right, like outliers and have those cases stand for the whole, And Republicans often use late-term abortion to try to turn the narrative, for example, obviously, in bad faith. So how should we be talking about abortion?
1: The subtitle of my book uses the term ordinary abortion. And my insight was that, as you said, we talk on both ends of the spectrum of the most dramatic cases, but together they represent maybe 5% of all the cases. And I'm always so struck, if you're not talking about 95% of the cases, those cases are real and they're important. 10-year-olds get raped. It's horrific. Tonight, a man has been charged with raping a 10-year-old girl in Ohio, who was then forced to cross state lines for an abortion because of Ohio's strict six-week abortion ban. Police say the suspect admitted to raping the girl on at least two occasions. The story is horrific. It's absolutely, it's just, it's just horrible. It's unconscionable. But if the story wasn't horrific enough, you have to add this to it. Several Republican officials and conservative media outlets had publicly questioned whether the story was even real. And they move us for good reasons, and we shouldn't stop talking about them. But the 95 percent represent what I think is the most common and the best reason to have an abortion, which is, I don't want to have a baby put very simply. And then the reason behind why you don't want to have a baby is myriad. And we can look at the research about economics, relationships, timing, things that are you, know, you would imagine. But I don't think you should have to argue about 10-year-olds who were rape victims to defend the right that says, I'm a grown person and I control my body and I'm a moral agent. Like I thought about this and I have an opinion about this that matters. And if the pregnancy is in my body, my opinion is just about the only one that matters. That I feel like I want to stand strong there and say, when you protect the most central part of it, of course, then you protect all those dramatic and horrific, more outlying cases. But I understand as a rhetorical strategy, we work from the drama, you know, in And my feeling is I'd like to stand strong in the middle and move out.
0: Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And it also takes the political narratives out of the conversation. And I love that it took us, I don't know, 24 minutes to talk about the politics of this, which is pretty amazing because I think when we're talking about issues, we so often go immediately to the politics of the issue. Before we even get into the politics, because, of course, there is discussion to be had there, I want to talk about the Supreme Court. Lots of news stories have been talking about originalism in relation to this case. Can you explain that concept to our listeners? And what does it say about us that we are relying on the interpretation of the beliefs of long dead men who couldn't possibly imagine the world as it exists today? to confront the issues in our modern world.
1: The concept of originalism is this idea that when interpreting the Constitution, you should look historically to what were the, quote, founding fathers thinking about at the time. And I think that what's happening now is, in a way, a perversion of originalism. And so in Roe versus Wade, the court actually was kind of an originalist decision. They looked at the 16 places that the word person appears in the constitution and said, there's no way any one of those has any application to an embryo or a fetus. The founding fathers were not trying to protect embryos and fetuses. However, through the years, the constitution very clearly has become understood to protect women, 100% people, no debate constitutionally. And so the Roe court said, gosh, here we have constitutional people, not constitutional people, according to the founders. So women will get to decide what happens with their pregnancies, right? So what this court does is turn that on its head and say, the issue is not women's freedom. The issue is abortion itself. They treat the constitution like a grocery list. If the word abortion wasn't on the list or on the minds in the conversation, in the 1700s, then it's off the table. You got me. They weren't talking about abortion then. You know, I'll concede that in a minute. But what they were thinking about, and this is why I say it's a perversion of originalism, they also weren't trying to write a grocery list. They were trying to write a document that would last. And historically speaking, it's amazing that it's lasted this long with this small number of amendments added since the time, right? So they did a great job. So when they wrote cruel and unusual punishment, there's a reason they wrote it that way and not you can drag someone by a horse, but you can't torture them in the stockades because they knew it was going to change. What did that mean? And so a true originalism says, well, what is it they were trying to protect and what does that look like 250 years later? And the best example, if I may supply one, is the aubert case in 2015 that said same-sex marriage is a constitutional right. And that decision is such a beautiful analysis of originalism because the opponents in that case said the right in question here is the right to same-sex marriage. It's a brand new right, It was never part of the founding. And the majority opinion said, no, you're being too granular. You're being too specific. The right is marriage, which also is not in the Constitution. But we've traced this line of protection of families from governmental interference. And this is just a modern variation on that theme. So, we're following that original idea of protecting this private realm of family life from government intrusion. But again, we're not doing the grocery list analysis. We're doing the principal analysis. So, this court, this is why I say this court is just historically going to be trashed. Looking back, it's already being trashed currently. It's just this phenomenally poor analysis that is so instrumental. They were appointed to do this. And they did it. And they didn't do it. How can I say this? They didn't do it honorably. What they did is write a fetal rights opinion, which to do honorably, you need a constitutional amendment to add fetuses as persons under the Constitution. They couldn't do that in an opinion. So they erased this whole women's liberty line. They, oh, leave it up to the states. Three more states now officially banning abortions as trigger laws take effect today. Idaho, Tennessee, and Texas are among the original 13 states with laws that were set to be triggered if and when the Supreme Court overturned Roe versus Wade. Well, since the ruling, at least 15 states have now ceased nearly all abortion services. But really, what they did was give fetuses rights the best they could, which is to let half the states do it. That's not reasoning with integrity. That's reasoning to a goal, which is not what a Supreme Court justice is meant to
0: do. Talking about amendments and states, my passion is the Equal Rights Amendment. And, you know, we're right now at a time where it's been ratified by 38 states. And it's still not part of the Constitution because of the arbitrary deadline that isn't even in the amendment. It's actually in the preamble. Can you talk about the ERA and what it might do to protect abortion care and other at-risk rights?
1: I think the ERA would be a fantastic step. I think that it's a reasonable argument to say, you know, there are some who say we already have the Equal Protection Clause, so we shouldn't need an ERA. And here, I won't say it's funny, it's absurd at the Dobbs opinion. Now, there's this fantastic Equal Protection argument that says, hey, here's a new grounds for protecting abortion rights, not privacy. Equal protection is already in the Constitution. And the court cited two cases, one of which I think is terrible, said that's already been decided. We're respecting those precedents. We won't reopen that argument. It's embarrassing. So a country that would pass ERA is a country that's ready to have national abortion rights. And so I think that's the right move because we now have a Supreme Court that's put up this roadblock and we need a change like that to change it at a constitutional level. But I want to note the significance of culture change and legal change and how they work together. You can pass an ERA, but if you don't have the culture behind abortion rights, if it doesn't say abortion, this same court is going to say, that's not what it means. So you still have this court interpreting it. I think the culture, I am 100% behind the ERA. I want to see it happen. And I don't want us to get content that if we pass that, it's a done deal.
0: What do you feel is the role of the president in all of this? People on the left are really frustrated that there hasn't been more of a a sense of urgency from him. But can he even do much about what's going on right now? And the same question for you about Senate Democratic leadership.
1: I think the president's role is limited. He absolutely has options. And he has, as everyone says, the bully pulpit to put this out there, that this really matters. I would like to see him use that pulpit more in terms of culture change. I think he could do more of that. But it is interesting in terms of the power of the executive branch, how much he can, how much power he has, he needs to continue to use it. And in terms of Senate Democrats, again, we have a filibuster issue in terms of passing the Women's Health Protection Act. So being out there and holding those votes, even though the House had already voted, I thought that was a fair and good thing to do to put people on the record, but we're really struggling. And so right now, I think the honest answer is this is a 50-state fight and we've got to win it in all 50.
0: So then where do we go from here? How can we fix it so that access to healthcare doesn't depend on your zip code?
1: Yeah, there's several steps. And one is the state constitutional arguments are strong and we're seeing state constitutional litigation that every state has its own constitution and the federal constitution is a floor, not a ceiling. States can give you more rights. So in Michigan, they've gotten enough signatures to put an amendment on the ballot to protect abortion through their constitution. It seems almost every day that we're seeing new attacks directed at women and their ability to control their own health care choices. But it's not only recent legislation that is actually threatening access to abortion. Uh, Just yesterday, a Michigan judge blocked a uh, county or uh, rather county prosecutors, excuse me, from enforcing the state's 1931 ban on abortion. Uh, Let me play for you just some of what the judge said. Weaponizing the criminal law against providers to force pregnancy on our state's women is simply contrary to notions of due process, equal protection, and bodily autonomy. Other states, there's litigation happening now to interpret their constitution as it is to protect abortion rights. There's state legislation, obviously. And with that state legislation, I want to protect abortion rights, but I want to do it better. And so the way I get out of bed in the morning is to think, how can we take a crisis and turn it into a moment of opportunity? I don't want abortion rights legislation. I want reproductive justice legislation. I want packages that protect the right to not have a child, the right to have a child, and the right to parent the children you have with dignity and in safety. I want child support and family support and to say, let's be the protect family friendly and protection and say, is childbearing actually a social good? I would argue it is. You're creating new citizens to be kind and contributing people in the world. We should support that just as we should support people who say, I don't want to have a child ever or now to support that all around. And I think this is, as I said before, a moment for culture change where we engage in what I call a politics of solidarity. I think in the pro-choice movement, we have worked with a politics of sympathy. And we've talked about that, the most dramatic cases. And then we've also worked with what I call the politics of respect, which say, it's because it's my body, it's none of your business. And I agree with it, but this is a deeply fraught moral issue. And so for someone who thinks that an embryo or fetus is the same morally as you or me, that it's unrecognizable why someone would make a different decision. And so the politics of solidarity that I advocate tries to take the both of the best of the sympathy, not up to you just because you feel sorry for me, but I will share something about myself and the best of the respect, which is I do get to make the decision because if I'm the pregnant person and combine them and say, I want people who have abortions to be recognizable as neighbors to those who oppose abortion. And I want them to be respected as decision makers. And so what I'm going for in culture change is to have the swath of Americans who oppose abortion be anti-abortion and pro-choice. To support the legal right to abortion does not mean that you have to think all abortion is awesome. And it would be great to be able to continue to separate that out, not in a, well, I am privately hate it, but I'm a politician, so I support it. But really, truly pluralistic, I get that I have neighbors and they're people too, and they see the world differently.
0: And finally, what gives you hope?
1: Dobbs is how we know we're winning. Because I think of Dobbs as the last gasp of the patriarchy. I think I am really academically in love with these social scientists who talk about stigma power. And one of my favorite quotes from them is that the interests of stigmatizers become evident when hidden processes don't achieve them. Then stigmatizers work to reinvigorate the system of social control. And so think about this hot 30 year run that we had legislatively and in the Supreme Court between 1963, when the Equal Pay Act prohibited wage discrimination, to 1993, where we had the FMLA protecting your job after you were pregnant and coming back. And so we had 30 years of legislation and Supreme Court decisions. Freeing women from their traditional roles of you must stay home and have babies. And then we had 30 years of seeing how that worked out of the explosion of women in higher education, in business, in all sorts of roles, empowered in sexual and interpersonal relationships. They, they don't have to marry the first person they sleep with. You actually have to be somebody's best friend and fun in bed, and you have to bring something to the table for true equal partnership. That historically speaking, is a phenomenal amount of change in a short amount of time. And so power doesn't give up without a fight. And so the only thing they could do is take away abortion rights. That's how powerful and how disruptive the women's rights movement has been and how successful we have been. So power doesn't give up without a fight. What gives me hope is it's working. And now we have to do some version of the 50-state fight. And I think of the sanctuary movement for Central American asylum seekers. If the majority of Americans just refuse to accept jobs and say, I'm sorry, you're wrong, not doing it, between travel and self-managed abortion and people just flooding the polls, I refuse to give up that we won't win this fight and we will win it in a deeper and fuller way than we had won it before.
0: Katie Watson, you give me hope. This has been one of the more hopeful conversations that I've had about the Dobbs case, and I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for all you do and for being a part of the podcast.
1: Thank you. It's been an honor to speak with you. Thank you for all you do.
2: I'll move to my final comments then, Mr. Chairman. I voted for the pain-capable bill, the fetal heartbeat bill, and fetal heartbeat has been for six weeks now. The second week that this, that the fetal heartbeat bill became law, a doctor called me out of Anderson. I live in Eastland. A 19-year-old girl appeared at the ER. She was 15 weeks pregnant. Her water broke and the the fetus was unviable. The standard of care was to advise her uh, that they could extract or she could go home. The attorneys told the doctors that because of the fetal heartbeat bill, because that 15 week old had a heartbeat, the doctors could not extract. So their only choices were to admit the 19-year-old, until that fetal heartbeat stopped, I asked, how long does it take to stop? She said, seconds, minutes, hours, maybe days, or discharge. They discharged that 19-year-old. The doctor told me at that point, there's a 50% chance, well, first, she's going to pass this fetus in the toilet. She's going to have to deal with that on her own. There's a 50% chance, greater than 50% chance, that she's going to lose her uterus. There's a 10% chance that she will develop sepsis and herself die. That weighs on me. I voted for that bill. These are affecting people.
0: It's been months since the draft Dobbs decision leaked. And more than a month since the Supreme Court tore away the right of women to control our own bodies, and I still can't get my head around it. I cannot understand how any court can think that the Constitution should be viewed as a document stuck in 1789 as it was seen by white slaveholding men who died centuries ago. The world is different, and our law and our interpretation of the law has to reflect those changes. The framers couldn't predict the future in which we live. Nobody has the foresight to see that far in the future. And the fact that we will still afford these dead men so much power when the overwhelming majority of Americans completely disagree with them on this one is the dumbest thing I can ever imagine. I worry for our country. I worry that we cannot survive the onslaught of stupidity from the institutions of power in this country. That's why I fought so hard against Brett Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Barrett's nominations. It's why, despite my incredible frustration with the lack of urgency from leaders in my party, I'm still going to work as hard as I can to elect Democrats to every single level of government if we can't overcome this moment if we give power to those who would take fundamental rights away from so many of us and then give them more power we are doomed as a nation and i love this country too much to let it go down without a fight and i hope you do too